Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here, as always, with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. All right. An enthusiastic hello. Not the three-second pause followed by Ike. <laughs> okay. So, um, and I think Akil is excited because we're getting ahead in the podcast. We're taping ahead of time for once. Um, you know, sometimes we try to stick with the last-minute uh, broadcast speaker or tapings because we're trying to uh, stay current on things in the news. Now the Supreme Court is, um, you know, having their August and September psychiatrist vacation or whatever it is, uh, or the French taking the fermeture annuelle um, for all of August, and the court is off as well. So things are a little slower in some ways, or so we thought. In fact, stuff happened. We're going to talk about it. And while we're going to spend a substantial part of this episode continuing our discussion of the Fifth Amendment, and Akil's theories that would reshape it in very important ways, our promise from last week that we would show you four pathways that would take us from our current state to the Amar land of new Fifth Amendment doctrine. Uh, in fact, that will have to wait for next week's installment. It's worth it, though, because you'll find this episode chock full of relevant and sometimes surprising discussion. Of course, we've got the gift that keeps on giving with uh, ex-President Donald Trump, and so we went in recent episodes from the Fourth Amendment to the Fifth Amendment, uh, thanks to him and his cronies um, and his lawyers, um, which, and we talked a little bit about what happens when your lawyer becomes your crony. After we recorded this, uh, but before we're uploading it, obviously, um, we noted that the New York Times had an article uh, on Sunday entitled, for Trump's lawyers, legal exposure comes with the job. So I don't think they were listening to our taping, so they came up with this independently. But uh, this article by Michael Schmidt and Luke Broadwater uh, covers some of the same themes, doesn't it, Akil? It does. Just to remind everyone again, um, even if Amar's ideas about Fifth Amendment reform are not accepted, we are already in a world where... Lawyers walk a tightrope because they are simultaneously agents of clients who can be criminal suspects and indeed criminal defendants, but they are also and always officers of the court. And that's always going to be a tightrope. Amar's reforms, my reforms, are going to um, change the location of that tightrope, um, but we already have that tightrope, and that's what this very interesting piece in the New York Times uh, illuminates. Yeah, we do recommend it, and I'm going to be putting a link to it on the uh, show notes. So I'm sorry if it's behind the paywall, but so we can't put up the whole article, but um, hopefully you'll be able to gain access to it. Okay, so we're going to get to the subjects that we began last time or continued last time on the Fifth Amendment and how we might get to some of these, to implement some of these changes that uh, Professor Moore has been recommending. But we can't help noticing the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and that I think you know rang a bell for any of the of our listeners who had uh, have read the and engaged with uh, Professor Moore's book, The Words That Made Us. Um, indeed, the very beginning of the book uh, harkens to an event like this. Yes, Andy, and thank you for that very kind invitation for me to plug the book, which I haven't in the last fifteen seconds. The book opens. Act 1, Scene 1, Chapter 1, with the death 
of a monarch, not Elizabeth II, but George II, and the proclamation of the new king, not Charles III, but George III. And of course, it had legal, the date had legal significance in those days um, because of the fact that all the writs issued by the, the crown uh, would expire six months later, and this has significant implications for the writs of assistance case. It may not have that significance, but we do see that Britain is going through all sorts of formalities uh, on this occasion, and it's interesting to, to see that those formalities had real legal significance uh, in the past. Again, the first paragraph of Chapter 1 is the news reached America, okay? And the news is old king was dead and a young king now sat on the throne. And then I actually talk about Americans being absolutely captivated by all the details of, in effect, the inauguration, the proclaiming of the new monarch. So that's actually pages two and three of the book are all the pomp and pageantry and formality, which is what we're seeing right now. And... Two other amazing connections between those opening pages and today's events. One, what I say is, oh, all the Americans, they're raising their glasses to the new monarch. They're toasting the new monarch, George III. And within 15 years, um, it's all going to completely unravel. And these very same people who are toasting the new monarch will be actually taking up arms against that new monarch. So just saying King Charles... Pay attention. The fact that some people are on your side now doesn't necessarily guarantee that they'll be continue to be on your side unless you govern well. And as a young man, by the way, Andy, a young Prince Charles came to my attention when I was in college when he said, oh, George III really wasn't so bad. He's, he's um, gotten a bum rap. No, no, George III actually it gets a deservedly negative rap. Then Miranda gets it just right, it seems to me, in the musical Hamilton. Brilliant depiction of George III in that musical. And, of course, um, Lynn is one of the dedicatees of the book. One other thing about the book, I immediately move, as you mentioned, Andy, from this proclamation of a new monarch to some technical issues about writs that issue in the monarch's name, and the particular writs which the Americans were interested in were writs of assistance, which were all about judicial authorizations of intrusive searches into people's homes. And the Americans didn't quite like that. They were the targets of these writs, which I think, Andy, amazingly enough, is a direct segue to another thing in the news, which we've talked about before on this podcast, which is all things Mar-a-Lago. Yes, I mean, intrusive, if completely justified, and, and it appears, um, searches uh, into Mar-a-Lago by the government. And some of the searches that were going to occur under the writs of assistance, yes, they were very intrusive, but they also might have been justified, Andy, because as they explain in Chapter 1, a lot of the folks in Boston are actually lawbreakers. Here's what I say. Boston merchants hated the sweeping search regime that was being contemplated. Many merchants were smugglers, much as nowadays many drivers are speeders, many pedestrians are jaywalkers, and many entrepreneurs are tax evaders. So 
It was very intrusive searches that were at issue in chapter one of the book, The Words That Made Us, these writs of assistance, very intrusive home searches, but also sometimes justified home searches because folks were smugglers and the government officials who were going into people's houses with a judicial piece of paper. Back then it was called a, a writ. You know, today it's called a warrant. But these government officials who were going in with pieces of judicial pieces of paper were often finding what they were looking for. Right. And so, yeah, we might add to that list our ex-presidents that hate uh, searches for classified material that they may have hoarded. Um, <laughs> isn't it amazing, Andy? And this is the really the idea of the book, that stuff that happened a long time ago is relevant today. Welcome to originalism. Welcome to constitutional law. Yes, stuff that happened a long time ago. The stuff that happened in Boston, just to remind our audience, in 1760, Act 1, Chapter 1 of the new book, that was an episode in which John Adams was in the room as a young lawyer, and he would later write the Massachusetts Constitution's search and seizure provision, and that in turn would be the prototype for the Fourth Amendment's search and seizure rules, which is what we're talking about today with Mar-a-Lago. A direct line from the writs of assistance through John Adams to the Massachusetts state constitutions, and state constitutions are really important, as our uh, listeners who've been paying attention to ISL know, direct line from the writs of assistance through John Adams to the Massachusetts uh, Constitution and its search and seizure clauses to the Fourth Amendment and its search and seizure clauses. A direct line, and that takes us to Mar-a-Lago. From Chapter 1 of the, the book, straight to Mar-a-Lago, and a second you know, straight line from Chapter 1 of the book, straight to the proclamation of the new king. And, of course, it's particularly in the news because we now have a, uh, a ruling, which is being contested, uh, by a judge that uh, allows for the appointment of a special master to interrupt the search and uh or at least the review of the proceeds of the search the fruits the of fruits. the search yes the fruits of the search um and indeed and uh and now there's a question of the appointment of a special master and this has raised a lot of outrage um and so i think it it's worth it because we we actually pointed out that a special master you know, under certain circumstances, when we were talking about Fourth Amendment searches, that special masters were actually the solution to certain problems under certain circumstances. Do you feel that that any of those circumstances that we mentioned are analogous to where we find ourselves now? Yes, um, maybe not identical, but let's take a step back. Our audience probably heard from all sorts of self-proclaimed experts initially saying, it's an outrage that there would even be the possibility of a special master. The Fourth Amendment uh, words don't require that. This is weird and odd. All these supposed experts saying that. now, And they were quoted quite credulously by the mainstream media. But these so-called experts are mainly prosecution types and DOJ lawyer types. And I'm going to be straight with the audience here. They're not actually scholars of the Fourth Amendment. They're not general constitutional scholars. I claim to be, I claim to have written an article called Fourth Amendment First Principles long before Miralago, long before the Trump issues, identifying certain important flaws with warrants, um, namely that they issue ex parte and they can be quite intrusive and the government often gets to pick, you know, which 
judicial officer to go to may have some form shopping opportunity. There's not a jury involved and, and there's not publicity quite. So that's what I wrote in 1994, building on the work of the great Telford Taylor, who saw it first. And there's an episode, of course, Andy, about Telford Taylor. I, I think the greatest lawyer of the 20th century that our audience can hear. So way back when I um, and this article, um, not to you know brag, but I'm going to brag, has been cited on multiple occasions by justices on the Supreme Court across the spectrum. And here's what I say in that article, which criticizes judicial doctrine to some extent. I say when you, for example, there's a search of a newspaper office, which we talked about in our previous episode. First, even if it's pursuant to a warrant, First Amendment concerns could well, should well trigger special Fourth Amendment safeguards heightened standards of justification prior to searching, immediate pre-search appealability of any proposed search with the premises sealed to prevent interim destruction of evidence, specially trained nonpartisan marshals or magistrates or masters to carry out the search, and so on. Then I say this lesson can be generalized. For example, searches of attorneys' offices often implicate special concerns of attorney-client privilege protected by the Sixth Amendment. Unless these searches are conducted with special precautions, say an on-the-scene special master to screen out privileged material before any document is probed by police eyes, they too should be deemed constitutionally unreasonable. Now, this analysis in the article wasn't limited to the First Amendment or the Sixth Amendment. It's broader. I'm saying the key idea is not warrants, is not probable cause, is not the exclusionary rule. The key idea is reasonableness, and warrants sometimes can actually be problematic, and James Otis understood all of this in the Writs of Assistance controversy, which I explain in Chapter 1 of the new book. I'm not shocked by the idea that you might want to master, not so much for First Amendment reasons, although you know Trump is a media publisher in his own right. He has his own media company. And not so much for attorney-client privilege reasons, although perhaps some of the documents that were swept up involve confidential communications with attorneys. But just more generally, it's not preposterous to me that we might worry when the government, even with a warrant, a piece of paper signed by a judge is breaking into the house of the leader of the opposition, the person whom the existing administration defeated in the last election and who might contest that administration in the next election. If the shoe were on the other foot, now I'm a Biden person totally and I'm not a Trump person, our audience knows that, but if the shoe were on the other foot, if a Trump administration had gotten a judge to sign a piece of paper breaking into the house of Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, that would start to set off some alarm bells in my mind. And I might want um, the reassurance of having some special safeguards just to make sure that any of the papers that were swept up were indeed papers that the government was entitled to and nothing more would be probed by prying eyes. So let me just identify the special problem with paper searches. And we talked about how the Fourth Amendment has special rules against about persons, like a body for bodily autonomy reasons, persons, houses, because those are especially private places, and papers. Here's the point. If the government is searching for 
a stolen automobile, well, it could probably go into someone's garage to look, but it's not going to go into my living room because I'm unlikely to find an automobile in the living room or a bedroom or a closet, okay? So if they're searching for a big physical item, that's going to limit the nature of the search. If they're instead searching for a diamond, oh, they're going to be able to open every drawer, even, you know, underwear drawers to to look for that little diamond. And you see, uh, going through an underwear drawer is going to be more intrusive than going through a garage, okay? That's for physical items, what the Fourth Amendment calls effects. There's a special concern about papers, and I don't know if we talked about it in, in great detail in our Fourth Amendment episode, but the problem with a paper search is the government is often going to need to read each piece of paper to decide whether it's the piece of paper that they're looking for or one of the pieces of paper that paper that they're looking for. Yeah, and I think that, we talked about the Wilkes case um, and, and how that raised some particular uh, First Amendment concerns. Uh, and, and, but, and not just First Amendment. Just imagine the piece of paper is, for example, a pharmaceutical prescription, something very embarrassing because you're taking medication for flatulence. This is not Trump-specific, but suppose actually you found a diary in which a person was bragging about their sexual exploits or something, as, as some people apparently are wants to do in, the, in their diaries. Suppose you found a piece of paper that suggested that the search target had syphilis, which is very embarrassing and also connected to mental illness, all, all the rest. I'm just saying there is a special problem with paper searches above and beyond newspaper publishers or lawyers' offices who have files implicating other people and their secrets, attorney-client privilege. Well, the bottom um, line is I think that a, that a, with a paper you have to actually read it to determine exactly. what it is as opposed to mo- you know, most other things where you can exactly. tell by just a quick glance. You know, now, that- on that quick glance, one of the issues that we're going to talk about is maybe some of these things seem pretty clearly to be totally legitimate items for, for government confiscation because – on the very cover, it says top secret. There's a label, and you don't need to read much beyond that to know, oh, that's a special document, and, and that's not a pharmaceutical prescription if it says top secret. So, so sometimes, just you know, without even reading the document, it's going to be clear that this is what you're entitled to take because it's not Trump's property. It's government property and very sensitive government property at that. But right, well, other- I think that, that brings up another issue, uh, Akil, which is that in, the, in this specific search, you know, it's not just a matter of secrecy. It's also a question of ownership. So, yes. um, so, so, so sometimes there could, so it could be theoretically that there's, I guess, that there's something that has personal information on it, but it's still covered by the Presidential Papers Act and therefore is a legitimate target for the search. And now um, you're saying the Fourth Amendment originally was all about property law in part. Um, uh, trespass law. What law decide, determines whose house it is, whose paper it is, whose effects it is? That's property law, which is what I you know, emphasized in some of our earlier episodes on this. Okay, so so it's so what you're saying is that essentially that it's complicated, but that there yes. are there are and, at least. No, and, Andy, I'm saying it's complicated, and also that our audience should listen to this podcast and not to the other so-called experts because they didn't see any of this coming. And if you had listened with care, audience members, to our previous episodes on this, you said, actually, 
I seem to remember Akil talking about special masters being sometimes useful adjuncts to even warranted searches. And indeed, that is what I said, and it wasn't about Trump. I committed myself to this proposition in 1994, and I still believe it because what law is at its best is blind. Justice is blind to the parties. I should have the same rules, whether it's going to favor Biden or Clinton or Bush or Gore or Trump or DeSantis or whatever. In the same rules should apply. And so I feel more confident about some of my assessments here because they're not in any way tainted by the possibility of Trump derangement syndrome. And in fact, you know, there are some aspects of a, of a special master that are protective of the justice. The Justice Department went out of its way uh, in some ways to uh, appear, you know, to, to obey the rules. They, they issued requests rather than subpoenas early on. Um, so they, they didn't take the, you know, the most draconian measures from the very beginning, I think in part because they, wa- they wanted to make sure that they were perceived as you know, not behaving in a prejudiced way towards, towards and, Trump. And we talked about how the magistrate, I think his name was Bruce Reinhardt, who actually signed the warrant. It was technically someone was commissioned by Donald J. Trump in 2018. I think one of our audience members said, oh, but he wasn't appointed by Trump. I'm not sure he ever said he was appointed by Trump. He said he was commissioned by Trump. And that's because all commissions, read your constitution, audience members, are issued by the president of the United States. He might have, in effect, been picked by judges, this, this magistrate. He's not an Article Three judge. He's, he kind of works for Article Three judges, but he was commissioned by President Trump. And that, that actually is going to be relevant, Andy, when we talk about the master, who the master should be, and maybe actually those of us who are team Blue should want the master to be someone who actually has, you know, some red, as it were, in his or her background, so that when this ma- master rules in favor of the Justice Department completely or mainly, Trump and his ilk can't just say that this was some democratic conspiracy. And we're going to come back to this uh, next week because I don't. This episode is not going to be all about special masters, and we do want to get to our Fifth Amendment discussions. But before we leave it, um, a couple of other things. First of so, all right. So you've, in your view, the request for a special master is not, in and of itself, altogether unreasonable. Um, however, uh, that doesn't mean that all aspects of the of Judge Cannon's ruling. Uh, are completely correct or reasonable or fair. Um, so, uh, you know, a couple of things that I was concerned about, and I think the Justice Department uh, has echoed those things, uh, are that, look, let's get this done quickly. Yes. And in order to expedite that, first of all, you should probably appoint someone that's capable of doing it quickly. Candidly, young enough and spry enough and has a lot of, background dealing with sensitive material right and of course you want someone that's credible that's that's uh in that respect but also perhaps uh as you said somewhat somewhat identifiably neutral and respected but anyway other concerns of the justice department i think are that um and this is related to to the the the, uh, notion of getting it done quickly is that as we mentioned, look, a lot of these documents apparently you know, have TS or top secret labels or, or other labels like that, 
And that pretty quickly eliminates some of these questions about, you know, oh, it's covered by lawyer client privilege or something like that. If it's top secret, you know, then it's appropriate for it's fruit of the search. Um, and that, so right away, those should be able to be identified. And why not have the documents be made available to the Justice Department on a rolling basis? So that, yes. Yeah. I agree. So as soon as a document is identified as permissible for the Justice Department to have, it should be given to the Justice Department. Let's imagine, just to keep the numbers easy, there are a thousand documents that have been vacuumed up, hoovered up. Maybe there's going to be a dispute about eight of them. Why should the other 992 be in limbo while the eight are being looked at very carefully and, and, and maybe further contested even with appeals? Yes. Once something's been clearly identified as proper, the government should be able to have it and use it for all purposes. And that means the fruit as well as the document itself and for criminal purposes as well as national security purposes. There's one other issue here. Some of the commentators, the so-called experts that you heard from first after they then sheepishly backed down, said, oh, it's weird that the government can't use some of these documents for criminal investigation purposes immediately, but can use the documents for national security purposes. And I say, welcome to our world. We, that's, that's, the, that's the world of Oliver North, for example, where there's a Chinese wall within the government itself, and some parts of the government have access to certain information. They're able to watch Oliver North on television, and other people aren't. But this is the world that you have when you have very broad ideas of Fifth Amendment fruits exclusion. And one of the related issues is going to be going forward, even if a certain document was improperly gotten, should the government still be able to use the fruits? Having, they've already read the document. They may have returned it now to, the, to the, the judge temporarily. But if they've read the document, why shouldn't they be able right now, today, to start asking witnesses about the thing and, and using that to pursue investigatory leads. And the answer is, oh, this is all Fourth Amendment fruit of the poisonous tree ideology and Fifth Amendment castigar fruits ideology, all the stuff that Akil doesn't like. But that's, that's the world that we're in now. Yeah, it's funny how it all circles back. Anyway, um, so, so this, in the last couple of episodes, launched us into a discussion of the uh, Fifth Amendment, and today we're going to connect it to some other discussions we've had and to sort of the mission of the podcast as a whole, as we see how these uh, discussions fit into a, a larger view of things. And that's part of the way that, that we do the podcast in general. Sometimes we dig into you know, what might seem like the minutiae, and other times we take a very broad view. And it's, there's no coincidence that we do that because that's uh, similar to your view of the way originalism should work and how one should look at the Constitution in general, isn't it? Yes, in the new book, The Words That Made Us, I talk about the trick or the aspiration of serious originalists, which is to connect the precise with the panoramic. So to show you, actually, uh, it's this word, um, it's this phrase, very particular, again, the precise or the particular with the panoramic. There are often going to be different ways of reading this word or that word, but one is going to best fit 
the Constitution as a whole, the largest themes of the document. And John Marshall and Joseph's story as a great tag team um, were particularly good at showing you the bigger picture even while parsing the particular or precise clause. And Alexander Hamilton was really good at that too. And we've talked about, for example, recently in previous episodes, how you know one word, direct, or two words, direct tax, you know, they could be read all sorts of different ways, but some ways fit the larger themes of the Constitution and other ways would betray the larger themes of the Constitution. And so what we've been talking now about the Fifth Amendment and certain words, and you can read them different ways. Just to remind our, our audience of these 15 key words that we've been obsessing on in the Fifth Amendment, no person, dot, 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 shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Okay, well, does person include corporation? What kind of compulsion are we talking about? When someone clams up, is the system entitled to think, ah, he's more likely guilty because he clammed up? Or is that improper compulsion to treat someone worse off, to presume, in effect, their guilt because they clammed up? What does it mean to be a witness? Are you a witness if you're forced to speak your name or give a handwriting sample or give a voice exemplar or to hand over your blood. What counts as a criminal case? Is it a criminal case when you are dragged before the grand jury, before you're indicted? And are you ever, surely a civil case isn't a criminal case, but are you allowed to take the fifth outside the criminal case in certain respects? And, and of course, doctrine says you are, and, and we agree with that. But, but what's the rationale for all of that? So the words aren't self-defining. Person, compelled, witness, criminal case. But the words become actually sensible once we understand what the big idea is. And that's an originalism well done, is connecting the words to a big idea, and ideally a big idea that we, the people of the United States, at some important moment in our national history, really genuinely embraced. I don't think the Constitution is filled with recondite, um, obscure principles that ordinary people can't understand, or if they understand, would actually balk at. So let's go back, for example, Andy, to um, one of the episodes where we talked about the religion clauses. I said there's a tension between separation, religious separation, wall of separation metaphors, and religious equality. And separation uh, pursued to a certain extent could actually end up discriminating against religion. As, by the way, since you mentioned France, the French do in various ways, but I don't think we Americans have ever committed ourselves to that. And we actually, in an earlier episode, heard my friend Erwin Chemerinsky, and he is my friend, even though I, I really disagree with him, say oh, sometimes actually the Constitution requires discrimination against religion. And I got him to say that actually on national TV in a C-SPAN moot court. And I thought, aha, I got him because that's actually what he does believe. That is actually his big idea. But no, the American people, in fact, have never embraced that big idea that we should be discriminating against religion. And originalism is often not only just trying to find a big idea, but to repeat a big idea.
industry genuinely embraced by a wide consensus and deep understanding. And I think this this joining of the particular and the general actually, you know, as we've examined originalism in recent weeks and really overall, we've been trying to look at some of the critiques of originalism. And if you don't take both of these things, you really subject originalism to to these criticisms. So if you say, if all you have is a big idea and no particular, then you have no law, in fact. Very, very high level of generality or something. Right. Prog- right. So then what you have is something that's very indeterminate, which is yeah. one of the accusations of originalism and not towards just originalism. In, and not just indeterminate, Andy, but, you know, can lead you to, if you read the Constitution at an extremely high level of generality, just to disregard what it actually says. Well, it's really not just the small states are given the same weight as big states. So if the idea is establishing justice, let's just actually ignore the very, very clear particular words that actually do say that each state gets the same number of senators, that is two, as each other state, regardless of population. If you just have a panoramic vision of the the goals of the preamble, for example, and you pay no attention to the particular, that can get you into trouble very quickly because now lots of the particulars seem actually unconstitutional to you. The Constitution becomes unconstitutional. And then if you only have the particular and no general, then either you get you you just don't know what it means, in which case you have to just be arbitrary. And as you're saying, you know, the, the words of the Fifth Amendment are not determinate in and of themselves and without any context to them. So then you'd have to just sort of choose something. And how do you do that if you don't have the big idea to guide you, you know, or you just have this over reliance on a comma or a grammar or a dictionary, um, which can get you in trouble uh, in in various ways. I, I believe it gets you in trouble in the second amendment. You believe otherwise, but, 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 but Andy, this, and you're right to, Focus on uh, Heller, is, which is what you were focusing on, and Scalia, who's too quick to dismiss the purposive clause of the Second Amendment. Yes, the particular without the general can be mindless, purposeless, arbitrary, and that's what you do worry about. So we, now we see the two dangers, the, the, the twin dangers, big picture without precision, and yes, a microscopic attention to this word or that one, but without any larger vision. And I would say finally that the bigger having the big picture available also helps you avoid getting stuck in a particular moment um, with you know certain concepts like equality and things like that, which have a certain timelessness. But originalism also does focus on certain times, and we're going to talk about that, certain moments that generated the text. And I want to have ideally not just the particular and precision and not just panorama, but let's actually bring in a third concept popularism, the people, popular sovereignty. I want a big idea that the people at some actual moment in history really did embrace and codify and constitutionalize. And I can show you where in the text actually we can see this big idea if we look carefully. And there is an idea and the people really believed it. It's an idea that I could explain to my Aunt Matilda or my Uncle Fred. I don't have an Aunt Matilda and Uncle Fred. Those are obviously just tropes for just an ordinary, non-law-trained person. 
You know, it's interesting that you say that because the one of the controversies around the Constitution concerns the difficulty in amending it. And uh, you know, there, there are those who believe we should make the Constitution easier to amend. Um, but I think your, your philosophy is one that's consistent with it being m- more difficult to amend because that, by amending the Constitution, we're, we can be encoding, in a sense, these big ideas. And if you want the people to somewhat overwhelmingly accept these big ideas in order to incorporate them into the, the you know, sort of fundamental nature of the Constitution, that would mean that you would want a Constitution that is not so easy to amend, that does require a supermajority or something like that. Things that were hard to do, maybe justifiably, can be hard to undo. I want people to think very carefully before they put something in the Constitution. Andy, yesterday was our 33rd wedding anniversary, and uh, by ours, and, you don't mean you and me, but you no, and your wife. Yes, we need their wedding anniversary, and I th- I'd like to think that we, you know, we didn't truth know quite what we were getting ourselves into. No one does, but we thought a lot about that. And wed- and marriages, unless you're in Nevada, are somewhat hard to do and somewhat hard to undo, and there's a reason why. Yes. Okay, and of course, this goes to questions of secession as well, perhaps. Absolutely. That's, but that's for another day. Okay, so that's so this is uh, connecting, perhaps somewhat non-specifically, our recent discussion to you know concept about originalism. I think what you've been talking about with your uh, theory of the Fifth Amendment, your Article Fifth Amendment, First Principles, and our recent discussion um, is an attempt to bring the Fifth Amendment back into line with the big idea of the criminal justice system. Exactly. So I'm going to give you a bunch of other precise provisions of the Constitution, adjunct, closely adjoining provisions of the Bill of Rights, and show you that they actually are also about the same big ideas and connected to the American culture more generally and, and what Americans actually do Believe So the big ideas, on, in my vision, driving the Fifth Amendment are truth in the criminal justice system with particular emphasis on innocence protection. I'm especially worried about erroneous convictions of innocent people. So truth may not in and of itself quite uh, tell us how we balance erroneous acquittals with erroneous convictions. It does, in principle, we want to acquit be innocent, and convict the guilty. That's the truth idea. It's, it's not about what the police did. It's not about who's, about your race or your ethnicity or your religion. It's about did you do it? Um, and, and if you did do it, you should be ideally uh, convicted. And if you didn't do it, of course, you should be acquitted. That's the truth idea. Innocence protection actually tells us, it gives us a waiting, and it says it's way worse to convict an innocent person than to let a guilty guy go free. And our audience, I'm sure, has heard that idea expressed many times. Sometimes people say, you know, 20 to 1. Sometimes they say 90 to 1, a 90 to 10. But we asymmetrically weight the system. Now, let me, with that big idea, and that's a different big idea than the idea that we're trying to protect the guilty as such. There have been moments in 
world history when the Fifth Amendment was connected to protecting the guilty as such, I argued. But that's when substantive criminal law itself was wrong because it made being a Christian a crime in pre-Constantine Rome, because it made being a critic of the government a crime in England in the 1700s or actually in America at a certain point. Um, Akil, so, before we leave that, uh, you know, I've heard some people comment on the our episodes, and one comment that I've heard people say is that, um, well, you say that the law was bad, right, that being a Christian was a crime in ancient Rome, and therefore the protection of the guilty, as it were, came about. But why would that be? If people thought, if the people that are making the law think that we need to protect the, these people because the law is bad, why wouldn't they just change the law? Why would um, they, Why you know, the same people that are saying it's bad to be a Christian, we want to kill you if you're a Christian, are saying, under your explanation, it seems, oh, we're going to protect you so that from saying you're a Christian. Why, why would those same people say that? Well, because it's not the same people. The original idea of Nimur Tanatur originated as a church teaching. It was actually what priests actually were taught and told their parishioners that you don't have to confess to the secular authorities. And once memes are out there, they can be adopted and uh, by other folks and, and, and turned to sometimes other purposes. And sometimes the people who are actually ad- using the Nemo Tanatra idea are there, there may be judges who are aware that the system is not actually just, but they don't get to make the law. Let's say in England, Parliament may make the laws, and Parliament may make the law such as a crime to criticize members of Parliament, and that and it is a crime, actually, in Britain at a certain point to criticize members of Parliament, but the judges may not actually share that intuition. It's not always the same person who's generating the legal doctrine or the maxim or, or motto or idea who's in a position to actually prescribe the, the criminal code. Okay, well, that makes it clear. Thank you. Okay, so so now we've identified these big ideas of the criminal justice system, and we need to keep that in mind as, yep. as we go forward. Truth and, yes. pro- and innocence protection. Yes, but Andy, I'm going to need to actually now connect it to the American people. So we have, I'm claiming precision. There's a way I can read the words. Nope, no person shall be compelled to be a witness against himself in any criminal case. There's a way I can read that to be about innocence and truth, excluding certain testimony words, but not fruit, bringing fruit in because it is reliable, because it will help sort out the innocent from the guilty. So, so I have my particular and my precise. There's a way I can read the words to fit the larger panorama, but I need to connect, which is innocence protection and, and truth-seeking, but I need to connect that to the American people and to the Constitution. I'm going to do it a couple of ways. One, just if I... Just explain something to someone in the street. I say, of course, don't you understand? That is the point of the system. That's why when you actually testify in court, you testify to give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And, of course, just in our larger culture, we talk about, let's just take, you know, even comics or something, truth, justice, and the American way. And, of course, we actually make it a crime to swear Falsely, we call that a perjury. Even though it's not in the Bill of Rights, everyone, in so many words, everyone, pretty much liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, all pretty much accept the idea of proof 
beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not the standard in a civil case between a civil plaintiff and a civil defendant. There's just preponderance of the evidence, 50% plus um, epsilon, whatever is ever so slightly more likely to be true, if, if that helps the plaintiff. If it's more likely than not that the plaintiff is correct in a civil case, plaintiff wins. If we think it's more likely than not that the defendant is right, defendant wins. But in a criminal case, no, the prosecution has to prove the defendant was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's not just truth-seeking, but innocence protection. And guilty people do benefit from proof beyond reasonable doubt, but they benefit as an incidental and unavoidable consequence of trying to protect the innocent as such. And my claim is excluding reliable fruit doesn't do that. Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule ideas don't do that, and their intention with this just a, a big idea that ordinary people today understand. Now, I'm going to have to connect it to the Constitution and, and what ordinary people who ratified the Constitution or supported various amendments uh, when they were added to the Constitution also embraced this idea. I'm going to do that in just a second, but this is not a controversial theme. Innocence, protection, and truth-seeking. The way I think it would be quite controversial, controversial to say Ah, well, the big idea is discrimination against religion, or the big idea is protecting the guilty as such, even when we're talking about murder cases and rape cases and robbery cases and arson cases. Why would we want to protect arsonists as such, murderers as such, rapists as such? So when you say as such, I think you're meaning that we may it may be necessary to protect some arsonists in order to protect innocent people but we don't exactly but but we don't protect guilt you know arsonists just to protect them in other words you know if uh we don't go out of our way to acquit guilty people we we go out of our way to protect innocent people right now let me and and also one other clarification for the audience is that when you've been using the term fruit and uh, without defining it i mean we did in our previous episodes of course but Basically, the fruit is just something that 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 one learns, um, you know, or just or, or has access to by virtue of some other testimony. So, you know, I say I testify against myself. I say, you know, I uh, I I did it, and the gun is in the drawer. Okay, so now you go. So maybe you can't admit that, but but if I said that to you, you might go and get the gun because I told you it was in the drawer. Um, and it's in your drawer, which is, you know, looks bad for you, and your fingerprints on it, which looks even worse for you, if for some reason it has the victim's blood on the muzzle or the barrel or the grip or something. Oh, that looks very bad for you. Right, uh, so those are all fruits of my testimony. So right. even though you might exclude the fact that I said those words, you don't have to exclude the gun just because I said them if you were to include the fruits. right. And we'll talk more about fruits throughout our conversation today. Yes. Because, um, my big idea is exclude testimony because it could be unreliable. People could confess to things that they didn't do. They might misunderstand their own mental states, which are really important because intentional murder is different than reckless homicide, which is different than negligent homicide. And even among intentional homicides, premeditation is different still. People might confess to things that they actually didn't do or be perceived as confessing to things that they 
uh, didn't do or deny that they did it, but the jury doesn't believe them because they sweat and stutter and just look guilty. And also because they may not just be about what they did, but why they did things. Maybe actually they did things in self-defense, but in, uh, they are perceived as confessing to having done something intentionally, malignantly, rather than with a good motivation like self-defense. Now, what I have to do is connect these big ideas, truth-seeking and innocent protection, innocence protection, to other parts of the Bill of Rights. And if I can do that, especially in the criminal procedure provisions, that's going to be an argument that we should read the Fifth Amendment in line with these other amendments. So let's take, for example, the idea of public trial. And if we're originalists, it's in the Sixth Amendment. There's a, a, the accused has a right of a public trial. If we're originalists, we actually look at historical evidence at the time uh, these words were added to the Constitution. And here's, for example, the legal treatises at the time that Americans would have been familiar with. Here's a 1685 treatise by English Solicitor General John Halls. Quote, the reason that all trials are public is that any person may inform in point of fact, though not subpoenaed, that truth may be discovered in uh, criminal cases. There is an invitation to all persons who can inform the court concerning the matter to be tried to come into the court, and they shall be heard. So the idea is it's a public trial. Witnesses take the stand, and, and you're in the audience. And if they lie, like you, you know, this is a local trial. You, you know the people. You say, Oh, I know that's wrong. You know, he said such and such, but, you know, he said he, he, he was there at the scene of the crime, but I remember he was actually talking with me at that very moment. It's like this Jane Eyre sort of moment, you know, in the wedding. If anyone has cause to know that these people may not be, you know, lawfully, but if there's an impediment, I object. There is an impediment. That's, that's a public wedding, you see, because not to ruin Jane Eyre, but it, it, it turns out that the, the groom is already married um, and, and someone in the audience. I just ruined Jane Eyre. I was going to okay. say, how is that not ruining Jane Eyre? Okay. <laughs> I, I just ruined Jane Eyre. Okay. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> but... Public weddings, public trials. Okay, so that's one person. Let me pick now another. Before um, you leave that one, that really also, I mean, this is a little bit off the subject, I suppose, but there's a real democratic nature to that um, of what you're saying is that, and you've argued before that juries and voting are related. And in some ways you can see how, how this is the case. That is, that in a sense, it's when we say it's the people versus so-and-so, this is another example of how that's the case. Absolutely. Now, here's Blackstone. Blackstone writes a four-volume commentaries on the laws of England that are a runaway bestseller in revolutionary America. Blackstone is cited up and down and sideways by Americans from the 1760s all the way through the, the 1860s. These treatises sometimes tell you not just what the law is, but why we have it. And Blackstone is explaining the public trial idea. Here's what he says. This open examination of witnesses, viva voce, in the presence of all mankind, is much more conducive to the clearing up of truth than a private and secret examination. A witness may frequently depose that in private, which he will be ashamed to testify in a public and solemn tribunal. Okay, so that's public trial, and you're seeing, they're, they're, they're saying very, very clearly it's all about 
true. Okay, let's take actually now the closely related right of confrontation. Here's what actually the legal treatise writers say, and the framers of these amendments are openly citing and quoting and echoing and building upon these treatise writers. And just to repeat, the one of the re, you know what we're doing here is we're finding other clauses, other parts of the Constitution that echo these same big ideas of truth and innocence protection. Right. Here's Blackstone. He's talking now about the oath, and he says, The oath administered to the witness is not only that what he deposes shall be true, but that she, he shall also depose the whole truth. And all this evidence is to be given in open court in the presence of the parties, their attorneys, the counsel, and all bystanders, and before the judge and jury. This open examination of witnesses, viva voce, in the presence of all mankind is conducive to the clearing up of the truth. Besides the occasional questions of the judge, the jury, and the counsel propounded to the witness on a sudden will sift out the truth much better than a formal set of interrogatories previously penned and settled. And the confronting of adverse witnesses is also another opportunity of obtaining a clear discovery, which can never be had upon any other method of trial. Blackstone, in turn, was building on a Sir Matthew Hale. Um, Cross-examination, says Hale, beats and bolts out the truth much better and is the best method of searching and sifting out the truth. By the way, Matthew Hale is a very prominent legal commentator in Britain. He has been he was cited he has been cited more than a hundred times by the United States Supreme Court. Why do I mention that? Because some people made a big deal of the fact that he was cited in the Dobbs case by Justice Alito as if that was some weird thing. The dissenters in Dobbs talked about precedent, precedent, precedent. Well if you're focusing on precedent, literally hundreds of citations in the United States reports to the likes of Blackstone and Hale, who explain the British legal system, major parts of which are incorporated into the American legal system. Here's one thing the Supreme Court itself, since we're talking about precedent, has said about the right to confront witnesses against you. So here's a recent Supreme Court case, a a 1980s Supreme Court case, citing many others, saying the same thing. The the Confrontation Clause's very mission is, says the court, promoting, quote, the accuracy of the truth-determining process in criminal trials. And the court labels cross-examination, quote, the greatest legal engine ever invented for the discovery of truth. Okay, so now I've, I've just begun to show you. I could do it at great length, and I won't, but I'm showing you what originalism actually looks like. Reading one clause in the Constitution to actually be an expression of a larger idea, ideally an idea that you can also see in other parts of the Constitution because it is, to borrow from John Marshall, a Constitution we are expounding. And now I've connected the particular and the precise to the panoramic and to the people. We are the people who actually say, yes, we believe in confrontation and compulsory process. The defendant has to actually be able to get witnesses because it's not fair otherwise because the witnesses might actually prove that the defendant has a good alibi, has a, has a good d- defense. The defendant has to be able to confront physical evidence against him as, as well as witnesses. It doesn't say that in so many words in the Bill of Rights, but of course that's true because it's about the defendant putting on a defense that shows he didn't do it. 
Why do you need counsel? Because if you're not law trained, even though you're innocent, you might not be able to actually show that. So Amar's idea is that truth and innocence protection are at the heart of many provisions of especially the Sixth Amendment, which is about criminal procedure, and therefore, I believe, also at the heart of the Fifth Amendment compelled self-incrimination clause. Now, what's intention with that? Excluding fruit, reliable fruit, willy-nilly under the Fifth Amendment, which current doctrine does, and a Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule, which judges made up after the Civil War, and not because of the Reconstruction Amendments, but just because judges goofed in that era, in the 1880s and 1890s and and 19-teens. And we're going to talk more about that era in a little bit later in this episode. But just to repeat, the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule does protect the guilty as such, and it isn't actually a founding era idea. The people never embraced that. No founder ever said anything like we should have an exclusionary rule. The text of the Fourth Amendment says nothing like there's an exclusionary rule. England, where we're getting um, much of our, our rules from, to this day has never had an exclusionary rule. No court in America, state or federal, and state constitutions have Fourth Amendment counterparts. No court in America, state or federal, ever excluded evidence on a Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule like theory for the first century after the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. So I'm saying all these provisions really are about innocence, protection, and truth. It's not just that all the specific words elsewhere in the Constitution in the criminal procedure sections are really easily connected to truth and innocence protection, but even things that aren't in the words of the Constitution that are basic bedrock today, accepted right and left, 9-0 on the Supreme Court, are about innocence protection, like proof beyond reasonable doubt, which, again, you won't see in the text, but it's a very famous and longstanding idea. A a case called Winship in the 1970s actually says states have to do that, as well as the federal government. Or, for example, the idea that you obviously have a right as a defendant to present physical evidence that shows your innocence. It doesn't say that in the Constitution. It says you can compel witnesses in your favor. It doesn't say you can subpoena physical evidence, but of course you have to be able to subpoena physical evidence or introduce physical evidence uh, for that matter because the big idea is the whole point of the trial is to see whether you did it or not. And if you didn't do it, you shouldn't be convicted. And Andy, offline, you and I talked about how the Supreme Court has really lost its bearing in certain habeas situations, where actually it's become so much about legal technicalities. Habeas is after you've been convicted. Can you be, be sprung in a what's called a collateral proceeding? And the court focuses today all on this technicality or that technicality. But there have been justices, including Justice Scalia, who, in my view, preposterously said, well, as long as the trial was fair and all the rules were followed of compulsory process and confrontation and speedy trial and public trial and the self-incrimination clause, as long as all the rules were followed, it doesn't matter that there's new compelling evidence that shows you're actually innocent. That's just not our problem, says Justice Scalia in a habeas context, and, and he's missing the big idea. 
that's the part. That's what we talked about earlier, Andy. Seeing yes. the, the precise um, and the particular, and not paying attention to the big idea. Right. So that's yeah. So certainly, it's not protecting innocence to say that actual innocence is not a reason to be found innocent or found not guilty. Now, in his defense, here's what he says. That's just not what federal courts should worry about. That's what pardons um, by the governor are are all about. And I'm thinking, yeah, but governors don't like to pardon for political reasons and and, and all sorts of things. So, no, that is the job of the justice system, of, of courts, of judges, to actually ever be vigilant for that innocent person wrongly accused or wrongly convicted and suffering. And Scalia's a world, I think... I'm not even sure he made an exception for the death penalty. So, oh, my God, we're going to actually, if his vision had prevailed, we're going to kill someone who now is making a compelling case in front of judges that new evidence shows that he's actually innocent of the crime. Oh, my God. Now, it's not quite, in this case, an example of elevating the particular over the general. It's because he's just elevating one principle over another, right? Due process over, he's elevating process over innocence. Um, and process is, but, is a big idea also. Right. So it's just, but, the whole, but the whole point of process is actually a fair process to, to, to sift the innocent from the guilty, don't mm. you see? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the point of the thing. Right. So um, so, so then process – so that's an interesting point. So process then is not necessarily the big idea. I mean at, at it, some point it, a big idea is somewhat it, irreducible, right? So you, you can't find another idea inside that idea. So Well, no. I, I would say process has its own intrinsic value. Fair procedures are valuable in and of themselves, but they're also designed ideally to sort the innocent from the guilty. That is – it maybe it's not the only point, but it's a very big point. Okay, so Akil, you've you've given us a number of quotes that are directly from Blackstone and Hale and others regarding uh, the value of truth as a big idea. But when you're talking about innocence protection, you've given us more implicit uh, ideas, things like uh, you know the standard of reasonable doubt. But that's not actually a, you know something that someone's saying; it's implicit. Uh, do you have something akin to, because really the controversy here is not so much, oh, we're seeking truth, but rather this question of guilty, are we protecting the guilty? Um, that To me, that's one that would sort of merit more discussion. So do you have a something a little more on point there on uh, innocence I, protection? I do. So you're, you're saying, gee, Akila, you're just doing living constitutionalism. People today, you know, say better X number of guilty uh, people go free than one innocent person suffer or something. And, and that's today's culture. But do you have any originalist evidence for that, Akil, is what you're really asking? And, oh, I do. You know, wh- who ideally would I want to have on my side? I want to have John Adams, who is the criminal defense lawyer at the founding or someone like Ben Franklin because he's Benjamin Franklin. And as it turns out, I got them both. Here's what John Adams says. And then not in, 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 a, in a rather important place when he's actually in the Boston Massacre trial. Here are his notes for the case. He says, it is better five guilty persons should escape unpunished than one innocent person should die. Okay. Many cites Fortescue, who was an ancient English authority. Indeed, one would rather, much rather, that 20 guilty persons should escape the punishment of death 
than that one innocent person should be condemned and suffer capitally. Okay? That's John Adams in 1770 in the Boston Massacre trial, which, you know, everyone is watching. It's a pretty important event in precipitating the American Revolution, which will have a, a Declaration of Independence all about rights and leads to state constitutions all about rights, including the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which Sean Adams actually writes. He's one of the leading found uh, framer of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which will be echoed in the Federal Bill of Rights. And remember, we talked earlier, Andy, in our episode about how John Adams's revolutionary experiences, like in the Writs of Assistance, influenced his drafting of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which was echoed by the Fourth Amendment itself. And we talked about that in our Search Lago episode, and, and now you're seeing John Adams, same John Adams, same era, saying something similar. Now here's Ben Franklin. This is 1785. Adams says five people, 20 people. Franklin does him one better. Here's what Franklin says. That it is better 100 guilty persons should escape than that one innocent person should suffer is a maxim that has been long and generally approved. Never that I know of controverted. Now, Franklin, note he's going beyond Adams in that he's talking not just about murder trials or capital cases, and he's going from five or 20 to 100, but he says, oh, and, and he's also saying, you know, everyone accepts this. This is a maxim that's universally accepted. Is it a truth universally acknowledged, you know, in, in the language of Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice? Here's actually what he's building on which is Blackstone's commentaries, Black to Blackstone. Here's what Blackstone said. All presumptive evidence of felony should be admitted cautiously, for the law holds that it's better that 10 guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffered. Oh, our rules of evidence should be really careful lest we erroneously convict the innocent. Oh, my God, that's my idea of the Fifth Amendment, don't you see? about rules of evidence that should be, we should be very cautious about them, lest innocent people be erroneously convicted. That's Sir William Blackstone, channeled by Benjamin Franklin, and paralleled by John Adams. Like That, my friends, is the gold standard of originalism. That's what originalism looks like. I mean, that quote from Blackstone, it seems to me it could be, it could be read to favor an exclusionary rule. In a sense, he's talking about, oh, be very careful about what you're admitting. Well, yeah. what, what would careful mean? It would mean you wouldn't admit everything, which means yes. you would exclude something. If admission risks the conviction of an innocent person, and that's precisely what's not at issue in the exclusionary rule because the evidence is reliable as all get out. There's no suggestion whatsoever it's unreliable. And if the government had acquired it in a different way, of course it would have come in, which is why the Brits say, because they are still Blackstonians, this is the quote that we had from our earlier episode, and the you here means the government, it matters not how you get it, if you steal it even, it would be admissible. So the test is not whether the evidence was acquired in a legal or illegal search, the test is is it intrinsically reliable evidence? Is it the smoking gun with the defendant's fingerprints on it? Is it the bloody knife with the defendant's fingerprints on it and the victim's blood on the blade? That's what we're looking and, and if it is, I don't care. The law properly understood shouldn't care 
whether it was acquired in a legal or an illegal search or whether it was acquired because of fruit of testimony that a suspect was obliged to offer up. Mm-hmm. That goes back to the value of truth also. Yes. Okay. So now you've, you've connected this to, um, first of all, you know, old ideas, but also uh, other aspects of the Constitution, other aspects of criminal procedure, and shown a certain unity about this. Now, earlier, you said that we should also care when these rules are adopted. Um, and why is that? Originalism is, in effect, textualism meets history of a certain sort. Even some non-originalists admit, oh, the text is binding. Some folks, actually, when you listen to them, academics, they don't even have an account of why the text should bind us, even though, actually, every judge, every public official swears an oath to the Constitution, which is a text. Sometimes when they say, oh, you know, it came from a long time ago and all the rest, well, yeah, that's true of the text. So does that mean that, actually, California gets more senators than Wyoming? Because as a former Californian, this seems right and just to me. I don't see really why Wyoming deserves, you know, the same number of senators as California, except the text is really darn clear about this. Uh, alas, the most edgy academics don't really have, uh, who are anti-originalists, don't really have a theory about why the text binds. And yet, I get to repeat, every judge takes an oath of office to the text, so does every president, so does every public official. But originalists go one step further. They say, it's not just the text that is the supreme law of the land. And it says it's the supreme law of the land. It says the text says so, you see. It says it, it counts for more than, for example, precedent. Um, but originalists say it's not just the text that binds us, but what carries special weight is how that text was understood at certain moments. At the moment that the texts were adopted, at the moment that the Constitution was enacted, or if we're talking about an amendment, at the moment that the amendment was added to the Constitution. What did we, the people, think we were doing when we adopted the words, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself? Okay, what did we think we were doing? And if that's the question of originalism, what did the people originally understand for, if it's a point about history, and it's going to be a point about certain moments in history, because 98% of our constitutional text basically comes from four periods, four eras, four constitutional moments, to use the language of my friend, teacher, and colleague, Bruce Ackerman. 98% of the text of the Constitution comes from the revolutionary slash founding era, let's say, 1776 to 1791 and the Reconstruction Era, 1865 to 1870 and the Progressive Era, the 19-teens basically, and the 1960s. To repeat, almost all the Constitution's text comes from these four moments in American history. The founding the Civil War slash Reconstruction, the Progressive Era, the 1960s. Now, once you understand that, here's a really interesting thought. If originalism, well done, correctly done, focuses on these moments in particular, not just the text, but the text that's understood in these moments, there's a reason 
why originalism is often going to lead to liberal results. Not always, but often. Because, Andy, these are the moments in American history where actually the liberal egalitarian reformers of their era prevailed. American revolutionaries against the British monarchy. American revolutionaries trying to create democratic slash republican governments of the sort that had never before been seen on a continental scale in the history of the world, putting things to a vote and, and not having property qualifications for legislators or executives and all sorts of extraordinary democratic reforms and then adding all these rights because ordinary people in the ratification process said, dudes, you forgot the rights. So the founding moment is actually a moment of revolutionary fervor in which I would say the liberal egalitarians in the world prevailed against forces of conservatism, the loyalists slash Tories in the American Revolution, and some traditionalists who were skeptical of the novelty of the American constitutional project. They actually lost, and, and the revolutionary reformers prevailed. Now, 1860s. Again, it's, it's going to be Lincoln's party, the Republican Party, party that believes in liberty and equality, gets rid of slavery, promises civil rights for blacks, fundamental rights for all, birthright citizenship, voting rights for blacks. They are the folks who prevail with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And then there are no amendments again for another 50 years. There were none basically between the founding period, or almost none between the founding period and the 1860s, and then this cluster of amendments, this spurt of egalitarian liberal reform, and then 50 years of quiescence, and then another spurt. We have these self-described progressives who give us a cluster of amendments, a spurt of amendments, an income tax that's going to actually be a progressive income tax, self-described progressive taxing wealthy people at, at higher rate. They're going to give us direct election of senators, a populist reform. They're going to give us some woman suffrage. At the state level, these same folks are going to champion other democratic reforms, initiative, referenda, recall. Okay. And then again, not very many amendments for a 50-year period. And then the 1960s, another spurt of amendments, another era of liberal egalitarian reform championed by people like Martin King, Martin Luther King, giving us a fair treatment of Washington, D.C. and the electoral college system, an abolition of poll tax disfranchisement, voting rights for, for young adults. So big picture now, if you're originalists, you pay attention to what things uh, the text meant when adopted by we the people and the moments when almost all the texts actually were added to the Constitution are moments of liberal egalitarian reform. Now, someone like Scalia doesn't understand that because he's not actually an historian. He talked a good game, but he knew no history, and he looked at dictionaries. I am a different kind of originalist that looks at history, pays particular attention to the amendments because, oh, the amendments make things better. They make amends. So we're going to have to speak. I'm going to especially talk about the Reconstruction Amendments, which Scalia, you know, tended to ignore. But Andy, you and I had conversations earlier about whether, you know, there's such a thing called liberal originalism. And you rightly remind me, no, Akhil, your, your basic theory isn't liberal originalism. It's just correct originalism, which, though, I'm now telling you here's why it will often, not always, but often lead to liberal results because we're actually channeling the visions of Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson who are revolutionaries 
and Abe Lincoln and, and, and his pals who are revolutionaries and progressives and 1960s reformers who are the liberal egalitarians of their era. Yes, and I think that uh, I, I do feel strongly about this, that it's not, you know, uh, you've, you've referred to different flavors of originalism, and I really am resistant to that concept because I think either, either you're doing it in a way that's respectful of the text and of the big ideas, I mean, or you're not. And if you're not, you're doing it wrong. So. Yes, and I think I'm doing it right, and I think Scalia did it wrong. There, I said Okay, but this is a very interesting idea that, I mean, and it, it has something in common with the notion that, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice, this, this sort of thing. It's not exactly the same thing, but it is interesting. It that- isn't, and, and Andy, here's why it's not. Because if you are like my friend, Elena Kagan, and she is my dear friend, I, you know, and she, she knows that I've, I've rooted for her forever, that the first person who ever asked her for her autograph, she, I hope will remember, was my son on his 10th birthday. When she says precedent, 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 the precedents have not actually all marched forward. The precedents have ebbed and flowed. I think the amendments have in generally marched forward, except for maybe the Prohibition Amendment, which was quickly repealed. The amendments have in general made amends for the sins of earlier generations. They have added to liberty and equality and very rarely detracted from liberty and equality. There's a reason I think that's true. It's connected to what we talked about before. It's hard to amend. It's hard to get this broad supermajority of Americans to support any amendment. And so it's not a surprise that almost all the amendments have been good ones because it's hard to get a lot of people behind a genuinely bad idea. So I'm saying the amendments have actually made the thing better pretty consistently. That's not true of the precedents. The Taney Court with Dred Scott was not an improvement on the Marshall Court. The, the court in the Gilded Age, as we're going to talk about, was not really an improvement. Uh, the Gilded Age of the 1870s, 80s, 90s, 19-teens was not an improvement on the Marshall Court era or on Lincoln's vision, uh, the vision of the 1860s. I'm not at all sure that the court today is better than the Warren Court, for example. So if you're looking just at precedents, oh, precedents have ebbed and flowed. But I think the amendments have, in general, marched forward. More liberty, more equality. That's an interesting point about originalism. And also a bigger point, I think, <laughs> in, so, in some ways, you know, today we're, the nation is very divided and people talk about, well, what do we have in common? What can we unite around? I think one of the premises of this podcast is we can unite around the Constitution properly understood. And why not? given that the that what we're saying is that the big ideas of the Constitution have been the encoding of the big ideas of the people. So why wouldn't we be able to unite around those things? Um, so I think it's, so that I, I think is one of the important missions, you know, of this podcast is to try to, you know, draw attention to what we, what we have in common as Americans. So yes, Andy, we have a, a constitutional text it unites us as Americans, but we also have a constitutional narrative, a saga, and a set of, frankly, heroes of that saga. They're what we have in common as Americans. We, we call them the founding fathers, whether we lineally descend from 
them or not. I don't, by as a matter of blood, descend from any of the, the folks in the founding era, and yet I can talk about George Washington and and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison as the founders and the fathers of my constitution, our constitution. And our audience will know, will remember that, of course, I think that one founder preeminently um, stands uh, above all others, George Washington. He's the indispensable man. It's really his constitution more than anyone's. Um, that's the argument that I make, of course, in the recent book, The Words That Made Us. And I think it has implications, if true. See, I say he's the guy that is the presiding officer of the Philadelphia Convention, unanimously selected. The Constitution is basically drafted in his image, in effect, by him, for him, especially the, the executive branch is crafted for him, in effect, by him. It, it, he gets what he wants when it comes to the executive branch. The Constitution is ratified in large part because Americans understand that he's behind it and he will be the first president if asked, and he's not only asked, but he's unanimously elected the first president. Every elector votes for him. Every member of the Electoral College is unanimously re-elected. And his view of the meaning of the Constitution, I argued, as a certain kind of originalist, carries special weight, especially his view of the executive branch, the branch designed for him, the branch that, that he occupies as its first chief executive. So uh, that's, our audience will remember, a big theme of my assessment earlier in this originalism series of the so-called decision of 1789. The absolutely rock-solid idea today, 9-0 on the Supreme Court, embraced by liberals and conservatives just across the spectrum, that presidents get to fire cabinet officers at will, especially the Secretary of Defense, which back then was called Secretary of War, Treasury Secretary, Attorney General, and Secretary of State. Okay, now, if Washington looms particularly large for a certain kind of originalist, trying to think about the founding moment, and for me, he does, and I've given you reasons why, especially on the executive branch. In effect, um, the Constitution delegates to Washington the authority to refine the details and sharpen the edges, the contours of executive power in America. If that's true of Washington at the founding, well, the next constitutional moment is going to be especially true of Abraham Lincoln. And actually, before I get to Lincoln, I should just say Madison's views about the Bill of Rights loom rather large for me because he is a particularly important figure in crafting the, the Bill of Rights, as is Jefferson, for that matter. And, of course, Washington is a big backer of the Bill of Rights as well. Flash forward from the founding era for the next great constitutional moment, it's Lincoln above all others. Washington looms above his contemporaries, but, but there is Madison, there is Jefferson, there is Hamilton, there is Franklin, there is John Adams. In the Reconstruction era, it's Lincoln preeminently. And what's really interesting, Andy, is it turns out that Lincoln looms large, not just in my vision of Fifth Amendment self-incrimination doctrine, but actually in four other related areas of constitutional law that we have talked about recently. So actually 
in five different ways, I'm going to basically be a Lincoln man. Say Lincoln, 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 as opposed to a precedent person. And the particular precedents that I think are actually rather dubious are precedents from the 1880s and 90s, uh, the Lochner era. And in five different contexts, we're actually going to see that we should be Lincoln originalists rather than Lochner era precedent people. And there's something quite remarkable behind this insight, I think, Akhil. Uh, Lincoln is a hero to so many Americans, whether it's for his stand on slavery or for saving the Union, for articulating American ideals, or even for his martyrdom. Um, but I don't think that many Americans think of him as a constitutional hero. Indeed, you know, in keeping with a, a trend that some find disturbing, there are numerous recent works that trash Lincoln in various ways, including uh, Noah Feldman's recent book, whose title, uh, The Broken Constitution, would seem to speak for itself. Though I'm not sure that Feldman really condemns Lincoln, but still he implies that Lincoln was a sort of extra-constitutional actor, uh, that what he accomplished was in spite of the Constitution, not uh, in harmony with it. Um, but what you're articulating here, Akil, is a model of Lincoln as a defender, a reformer, in some sense a redeemer of the Constitution. And that's consistent with another vision you laid out in this episode, to summarize a little bit, you know, where the, the great strides forward in our Constitution took place at moments of reform, when the country was generally united behind those concepts, whether they're those of equality or increased suffrage or many I other ideas that Americans, you know, largely agreed upon as they were incorporated via amendment or indeed in the original ratification into this document that, you know, you and I maintain and hope can unite us. So in our next episode, we'll explore this thesis, this uh, model of Lincoln uh, as constitutional hero in light of our recent discussions of the crucial Fourth and Fifth Amendments, uh, and more. And as we leave you in this podcast, we want to remind you of our request, which is your job, please, listeners. Think of three people that you think would enjoy our podcast and get something out of it. Let them know about the podcast. Encourage them to listen to it. To subscribe to it is even better. Um, and... Again, if you if you like the podcast, please leave us a uh, one of those coveted five star reviews on uh, whatever podcast access method you use. Thank you. Thank you.